Please open your copies of God's Word to Psalm 10, please. To Psalm 10. And although our attention will be taken by the second part, verses 12 to 18 of Psalm 10, we'll read the whole of the psalm again together. Psalm number 10 and commencing our reading at verse 1. Psalm 10 from verse 1. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villagers. In the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it. For thou beholdest mischief and spite to requite it with thine hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou, fi till thou find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, Thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word to us all this evening. So as I mentioned, uh, we're examining verses uh, 12 to 18. We got up to verse 11 last, uh, last time. And we saw uh, in those first uh, 11 verses, especially taking verse 1 and 2 as its own section, and then the remaining uh, verses 3 to 11 as a second section, we saw in that first section, I was giving it the title, The People of Christ Described. 
And so fir firstly we see their, we saw their feelings of being forsaken in verses 1 and 2. And that's how he opens up Psalm 10, why standest thou afar off? Then noticing the distance or there appear, that appeared to them that God was distant. And in contrast with that was the nearness of the wicked in, in verse 2. And then we moved on to the description of uh, the wickedness of the wicked, but we also made this truth to be known, that this actually describes the sinful nature of both the redeemed and the reprobate. This is still very much part of the experience, the life experience of the redeemed of the Lord, that there is uh, an evil nature still within us. There's still the old man of the flesh Others do not have this rebirth. They do not have this, the drawing work of God. They do not have the grace of God, the Spirit of God that gives them something else other than the old man of the flesh and the fruit of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh. And so we took that as to examine our own selves before the Lord and see the description of their wickedness is also a description of our own sinful nature and we saw that in a number of places in these verses that there is a boasting in evil there's a godlessness in life there's a being blind to judgment there's a foul mouth in various ways we saw cursing gossiping slandering lying hatred of their fellows and desiring the distance of god we see in verse 11 he hath said in his heart god hath forgotten and of course that describes that describes the wicked that we know in life against us or we see in the world. Maybe it's somewhat of a, a distance from our experience, but we know that we ourselves, we know that the church, the Old and the New Testament church, has had to deal with the wicked breathing against them. Here we have an example in the Old Testament in Psalm 10. And so we were encouraged, therefore, as we came to the end of that second point, is to be... Uh, is that the sinful nature of every Christian was to be attended to, was to be challenged. And there were a few words that we, 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 we drew out of the scriptures, that the old, the old man of the flesh was to be mortified, the deeds of the flesh put off, the wickedness to be plucked out, and the old man himself crucified. And so that's what we're exhorted to do in the scriptures, to be holy as God is holy, and to... Not allow the flesh to conquer you, lest that be proof that you never were saved or that you were deeply backslidden, but that you are in Christ to the glory of Christ and by the power of Christ uh, to, to conquer, to have control over, to cause to submit to the newborn again you, the old flesh and its desires and wickedness. So we saw in that regard the people of Christ uh, described... And the flesh, therefore, being the main enemy of the people of God. We know the threefold enemy of the people of God, uh, the devil, the world, and the flesh. Uh, the flesh is something we carry around with us every day. It's the one that's spoken of more often. And the world, of course, is a, a collection of those who are run by their flesh, who are enslaved to the wicked desires of their flesh. And, of course, the devil's there in the background manipulating everybody's sinful flesh. So we have those three, but you'll notice, with the, as you know the Scriptures, that the flesh is spoken of more often. 
contrary to what Luther seemed to believe. As he was always, he was always, he was always rebuking the devil as if he was some sort of charismatic uh, Christian. Um, no doubt the devil is there in his own way. We know that he goes around as a roaring, lying, seeking whom he may devour. Uh, we know these things, and yet it is the flesh that we are exhorted to, to have under a godly control. But the worst enemy then outside of the sinful nature is, of course, other human beings. And that's ever been the case between the church, the seed of the woman, and the world, the seed of the serpent. Of course, the serpent is there still. And that's, what, that's an enemy that we personally experience in many different ways in every aspect of our lives, whether it's it maybe in our family, at school, at work, at university, at church, anywhere and everywhere, to be honest. We can, we can come across people who, who are then, as we see the psalmists writing about frequently, and especially in this psalm, are the wicked and are against us and are, the, are out to destroy us and especially to destroy our faith in God as they boast in their own evil and, and speak of the, the uselessness of calling upon God. We've certainly seen that in previous psalms so far and discourage us to put our trust in God. But the psalm itself uh, is there to encourage us to put our trust in the Lord. And so now moving on from our sinful nature, let us see the people of God here now described as the humble, as the poor, even as the fatherless, in all these ways describing the people of God who are in need of something from God. Important things, uh, terribly important, essential things, safety, rescue, help, deliverance, comfort. And the Lord is pleased uh, to grant us, and as the Lord is uh, and as the Lord is pleased to help us this evening, we will continue then uh, with our message. So the first two points from last week, the feelings of being forsaken and the description of their wickedness. And we move on and we come to verse 12 then with the cry for help as we have part two of this uh, message. Part two, the people of Christ described. So thirdly then, the cry for help we come across now in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up thine hand, forget not the humble. And this seems to carry on from verse 1 then. Verse 1 is also a direct calling upon the Lord. Um, verses 2 to 11, more descriptive of the enemy that we have to deal with. And as we mentioned, not only outside of ourselves, but in our wicked nature. But now verse 12 again is calling upon the Lord directly. This is a, the cry for help. It is a petition and it's a threefold petition. And firstly, he, he, the psalmist prays that the Lord, that Jehovah himself would arise. It's a call for attention. So the Lord would actually, having heard all these matters of the enemies of God, who are the enemies of his people, and therefore they, they, um, they are against God. God is not in all their thoughts. There's all those things that we've considered about the wicked, the unrepentant wicked. And so, as it were, the psalmist says, now I've, I've said all this, I've declared all this. None of this is unknown to thee, Lord. Now arise. Now come to our aid. It's a call for attention that the Lord, as a king, 
sitting on his throne, having heard the petition of his suppliant coming before him, is now to arise from the throne to come and make a decision, to, to give orders, to, to send his angels to have charge over us. And so that's the first desire, arise. Secondly, lift up. Following on from the call for attention, a call for action. O oh God, lift up thine hand. And as we will see in, 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 in the following verses, that is, a, that is a hand of a king to use against the enemy, to use against the enemy of God. Lift up thine hand. And again, we can think of it, lifting up the hand to send, to send troops, to give orders. But I think it is a very personal action of the king that he's to lift up his hand to strike down the enemy. Whether that's directly by doing it himself, indirectly by sending angels, by sending his troops to deal with it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand, and then thirdly, forget not. So it's a call for pity as well. It's a call for pity. That we're coming before the Lord as we do in prayer, and, and seeking that the Lord would help us, but he's, he's helping us for pity's sake. For the sake of the fact that he is the God of all comfort, that he is the God who has promised to deal kindly with us for Christ's sake. Forget not the humble. Forget not thine own people, Lord. Forget not those who by grace have humbled themselves, have repented of their sins, have come to thy throne on their knees and are seeking thy help, have come to thee thy way, have received forgiveness thy way, the Lord's way. And they are the humble. We are humbly. When we pray, we humble ourselves. This is often said um, when we consider the Arminian, and the Arminian speaks very prideful about how he's able to make that choice for God or, or not for God, and, and that, that God is not sovereign over all things, that man also has a free will and a sovereignty. But the one thing that, that, that the Arminian, the true born again, yet wrongly in his theology, Arminian Christian and the, and the Calvinist Christian, is that when they're both on their knees, they're both Calvinists. Because they're on their knees before the God who is sovereign. He's sovereign to hear the prayers. Suddenly the self-will and the self-choice go out the window when the Lord's providence brings problems into the Arminian's uh, life and they too get on their knees and confess the sovereignty of the Lord and call for him, for pity, for help, for uh, attention, for action in, in that way. We'll see more of that as we approach we we'll continue in these verses this evening. So we see that cry for help. And, and God is our help. And we have been instructed, the church of God, from beginning to end, has been constantly instructed, as we have it in the Scriptures, to call upon the Lord in the day of need. Always to call upon the Lord. Call upon Him for small things and for great things. Cast all your cares upon Him. Every care, every care. We should, we should, as it were, embarrass ourselves or embarrass the Lord by just bringing absolutely everything before Him. I mean, I've heard people who would say, 
Uh, and I'm sure they're well-meaning, you know, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't pray that the Lord would give us a parking space or that we shouldn't pray that just these small matters. We should only bring the important matters before the Lord. And, and this is the problem with human logic. It sounds so right, but it's not found in the Scriptures. The Lord desires that we would bring our every care, every worry, small, tiny worries, massive problems, everything before him. And let him deal with them. Let God sort them out. If the Lord thinks that they're not worth dealing with, then that's his business. But that's not what he's revealed in his word. He's revealed in his word that he desires that we'd call upon him for everything. And so we should. Putting again faulty human logic to one side, casting all our cares upon him, and that he would deal with us that he would give us that attention, that he would give action to the, our prayer for our need, and that he would do it because he is a piteous God, a God who was full of pity and care and tenderness toward his people. He hath, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand, forget not the humble. And then we move from the cry for help, the cry for help, but fourthly, we come to the why of evil. Why, why is there evil? These, these questions are, are brought up now. A very deep question to be posed before us this evening from verse, verse 13. We're considering the why of evil because that's what that wherefore is. Wherefore, which means why. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? There's, there's a question regarding the wicked now. Why doth the wicked contemn? Now, contemn is not a word that we use very often. Contemn means to despise. We have another word that we do use a lot more often, and it comes from the same, same Latin word, the word contempt. So to contemn means to hold in contempt, to despise. Why do the wicked despise God? The psalmist says. And why do they despise God? Well, we understand it from what we've already seen, even in verse 11. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He thinks God can forget anything. That God can forget that God is able to hide his face. That God will never see those things uh, that he does see. So they have a wrong view of God. So their little God, their, their religious God, or, or some would say, some would have very despising and blasphemous views of God of which these are they, because they believe from verse 11 that God is not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent, but he is those three. So they have a wrong view and understanding of who God is, and therefore their wrong understanding is what they despise. And we'll know this from famous atheists. They won't deal with the God of the Bible because they're ignorant of the Bible. Dawkins, for example, when, when he speaks of religion and he speaks of the Godhead, he's, he's constantly despising and speaks of the, flaga, the flying spaghetti monster. Nobody believes in the flying spaghetti monster. Says no, but, no, but nobody does believe in that. I mean, it's, it's, just a, it's just a false and a bad argumentation. He may be a very good evolutionary biologist, but he's a pathetic theologian and cannot deal with the Scriptures or the truth but, of course, he's not speaking to those who are interested in theology. He's speaking to those who also want to contemn God, to despise God. 
So wherefore, why doth the wicked despise God? Well, we, we see, we get the answer actually in the same verse. He hath said in his heart, thou wilt not require it. Now we touched upon this last time. They believe that there is no judgment. They believe for some reason that they can do terrible things. Small wickednesses, great wickednesses against everybody. But God is not a judging God. Maybe they're hoping in, this, in the bad theology that is unfortunately in many churches, oh, that God is a God of love and God will not deal with their sins. Not realizing that God, of course, is a God of love and he loves righteousness and he loves his son and he loves that, that sin-cleansing blood of his son and he, he loves the gospel that he planned from all eternity with his son. Yes, God is a God of love and he loves judgment for sin because he hates sin and he hates sinners. But he loves his son and he's provided a way for sinners. Wherefore, why doth the wicked contemn God? Well, because this, because he has said in his heart, thou wilt not require it. There is no judgment. There is no fairness. And this comes from a human. And, and as we all are in our hearts, when something bad happens to us, the first thing that arises within us quite often is an anger. An anger so that justice would be done. How dare you say that to me? How dare he do that to me? How dare he do that or she to somebody I love? How dare they lie so brazenly in Parliament? And, and, first, and, and we have that natural justice, that vengeance that rises up in us. And that's the same for these wicked here. That will say that God will not require it. And yet when somebody does something against them, then they become venging little gods themselves, wanting to destroy anything and everything to have vengeance. So if it's in them, what they, why would they not see that that is in God? No, because they will not see it. They dare not see it, because then their understanding of their own sin and their own guilt and their trouble before a holy God would change. And they would have to take their soul seriously. They would stop, have to stop being a careless sinner and become a very careful, repentant believer. He hath said in his heart, thou wilt not require... That's the answer regarding the wicked. Then leads us into the next part of the, the following verse, the rebuttal to the wicked. In verse 14. Because the rebuttal to the wicked is this, thou hast seen it, Lord... He says, thou hast not seen it. Uh, we, we, we see that specifically at the end of verse 11. When, when the wicked says in his heart that God hath forgotten, he hideth his face, he will never see it. Aha, says the psalmist. Aha, says the Holy Ghost through the psalmist. Thou hast seen it. God has seen it. God has seen everything. For thou beholdest um, mischief and spite to requite it with thy hand thou hast seen the Lord has seen it all because the Lord sees the wickedness the mischief he sees the spite he sees the wicked motives the, the nastiness the, the unkindness the, the revenge the, the unrighteous revenge because of course vengeance belongeth to the Lord and not to sinful man so the Lord has seen it what they've done He's seen the, 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 the false desire, the wicked desire, the mischief. He's seen the wicked motivations, the spite, 
and he will requite it. He will pay back. He will judge. He's seen it all to requite it with thine hand. And that's the rebuttal to the wicked. We're going to just for the time being jump over that second part of verse 14 and look at verse 15 and see the breaking of the wicked. The breaking of the wicked then. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. Especially that first part of verse 15, the breaking of the wicked. And this is the petition. This is the petition that's made by the believer to the Lord that they would break the arm of the wicked. What does that mean? Because you might think, well, Lord, destroy the wicked. But actually what he's saying, and this is more precise, maybe something we can learn from this, is that he's, he's praying that the Lord would break the ability of the wicked to actually do harm. So that which they are coming against you with, that arm, that arm of the flesh, the, 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 the strength to, 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 to destroy you, is saying, well, Lord, will take his strength away. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. We can also understand something that we've already seen earlier where, the, where it's talking about that the, the Lord would strike them on the, on the cheek and break their teeth. Again, that, that, that's not a praying to the Lord. I'm not saying we can't, but it's not a praying to the Lord to destroy them, but that the Lord would rebuke them painfully to bring them to their senses. That there's something of a mercy in here that the Lord would bring them to their senses. Not just a prayer of imprecation that the Lord would bring cursing upon them, that there is something of, there, of that, and that's allowed. But Lord, break their arm. Take that power away from them. We could say, we could say even with a, a modern application, it destroy the power of, 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 uh, of Klaus Schwab, or destroy the power of Macron, destroy the power of Trudeau. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man, that, that God may bring them to their senses, that they may have that time of self-reflection and then call upon the name of the Lord. But in any case, Lord, they are the evil man. They, they are attacking the humble and the poor. They are attacking me. Lord, stop their attack. So the why of evil is given in, in, in various ways in those verses we see, but we come then... And we come back to verse 14, see, we see the help of the Lord. And the help of the Lord is, is opened up to us in many glorious ways in these verses. Uh, verse 14, uh, C, the, the third part, it says, The poor committeth himself unto thee. Why? Because he is faithful. We can commit ourselves unto him. We, we can pour out these prayers and these petitions. We can pour out our sorrows. We can say, Lord, it, lay them low. Take them away. Remove them. And we can do that and we can cast these cares upon the Lord knowing that he cares for us and knowing that he's faithful, that we can commit everything to the Lord. When we, when we, when we first come to the Lord, what's the first thing that we commit to him? Our sin and guilt. When we come to him on our knees, as we've been made aware and awoken to our need of the gospel, is that we come repenting. We come, I've got this burden, Lord, I've got this sin, I've got this guilt, I commit that to the Lord. We say often that we come to the Lord with empty hands, well actually we come with very stained hands. 
and we give that to the Lord. But we continue to give ourselves to the Lord and we continue to give our problems to the Lord and our weaknesses and our great inability. Why? Because we've learned to trust him. We've received that gift of faith at conversion, but we continue to trust him. And this is what we have here. It's committing ourselves to him because he is faithful. And that's our great motivation in prayer, of course. Is that we can come before the Lord and he will listen. So many in the world would not listen to us. They may be half distracted as we're talking to them. They haven't really listened. And those in high places, as we've mentioned many times, would not even listen to us anyway. Who are we? We're not going to help them with their status or with their wealth or whatever. But he will listen. He's faithful. And then as we see at the end of verse 14, that we see that he is kind. So the poor committeth himself unto thee, the poor, a wonderful description of the Christian, of the believer, because we have nothing, and all that we have is given to us. But the poor committeth himself unto thee, thou art the helper of the fatherless. Twice we have the expression fatherless. Again, that points to um, the believer, I would suggest. We are the fatherless. I think that says something. We're not, far, we're not fatherless because we don't receive a new father. Because there is a new father. But we are sometimes, we can consider ourselves to be fatherless because we were abandoned by our first father. But the fatherless really in society in general are the weakest and the poorest. The orphan. have nothing there's no father to protect them we are the weakest this takes does not take away at all the understanding is that when we come to the lord that we are adopted into the household of god and that we have then the best father not just in the world but in eternity and in the universe so for those of us who've ever missed a father had an imperfect father well that's everybody some people's fathers are more imperfect than others. We do have a wonderful father. We have a wonderful father. But there are those who are truly fatherless, even within the church. As in, there is no earthly father. Where was he? He was taken away. He went away. He may have even been present, but he would have been useless as a father. He wasn't there to protect, provide, and to give that affection that is needed. But certainly within this context, we have the poor, we have the humble, and we have the, the poorest of the poor, the fatherless. And thou art the helper of the fatherless. Even to the, the least important in the church, there is a helper. We could say there is a father of the fatherless. So he's faithful, he's kind, he's the helper of the very weakest, of the least important He's also strong. We've already seen that in the beginning of verse 15. Break, break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. So this God who is faithful, this God who is kind, this God is strong. Strong to save, strong to defend, strong to hear, strong therefore to answer our prayers. That's the wonderful um, part of the Lord's Prayer. We have the doxology at the very end of the Lord's Prayer. 
for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And that's the truth that we have here. That we call upon the Lord of heaven for all these needs, for our physical needs, for our, for our, um, uh, for our uh, spiritual needs, moral needs. And we can call upon the Lord for all of these things because for thine is the kingdom. He's a king. He's a king with wealth. He's a king with power. He's a king with armies. For thine is the For thine is the kingdom, the power. Well, he has the strength and the glory, and that's why he will do it, for his glory's sake. Because he is kind, because he is faithful, because he is strong, and he's also righteous, we see in verse 15c. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. And that means this, that the Lord, in his his righteous Judgment will search out every sin. This is also an imprecation. This is a calling upon the Lord. Uh, We often call upon blessing for ourselves and for others, but the imprecation is to call down the Lord's wrath and cursing upon their sin. It's also part of the doctrine of prayer in the Scriptures. It does not contradict that we do pray for our enemies and bless them. We do the blessing. But Lord, deal thou with them in thy way, according to thy righteous judgment. So the Lord will seek out every single sin where in in contradistinction to what the, 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 the sinner keeps on saying all the time, that the Lord will not see, the Lord will not notice, and if the Lord does notice, the Lord will forget. No, every single sin is to be found out. And that's why it's so important that every single one of your sins is to be found out and covered in the blood of Christ. Lest God will find out every one of your sins. Every single sin is known to the Lord. He knows the outworking of the sin, the word and the deed. He knows the desire that led to that. He knows the thoughts, the sinful thoughts, and he knows the very sinful heart that produced them in the first place. And each will be judged and dealt with. Now, if they're under the cover of the blood, Christ has dealt with them all. If a sin has been paid for it, it will not be judged again. There's no double jeopardy. That is, you do not pay twice for the same sin. If the sin has been dealt with, then there is forgiveness. But if the sin has not been dealt with, then there is wrath and punishment forevermore. Because God is righteous. And finally, in this, little, in this section here, the help of the Lord, he is sovereign. Uh, we see that in verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. So this king who judges, who protects, who defends, who loves, and is a faithful king, is an eternal king. He is the king of kings. And what we read here in verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. And what will this eternal king do? It says the heathen are perished out of his land. There's there's a day coming that all those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be removed from the earth. The earth will be cleansed of all the enemies of God and all our enemies, all these unrepentant wicked They will be removed. And there's only one place for them. 
At the moment of death, the soul will be in hell. But when the Lord comes to cleanse them all, after the resurrection, they will be poured out into the lake of fire. And what does that say about God? That says that God is righteous. But what does that say about sin? It is terrible. That sin has to be dealt with in that way. That sin has to be put in a place of quarantine. Now that's a word we understand these days. It has to be put in a place of quarantine. And the descriptions of hell that we have are not one big drug-ridden party. As fools in the world would have us think. The descriptions that we have about hell, it is that it is fiery hot, that it is a place that gives a thirst that will never be quenched, that it is a fire that is dark, outer darkness. There is no, it would appear that there is no communication with each other. Everyone is dealing personally with the wrath of God themselves personally. Because their sin, our sin, is so wicked. And it must be dealt with. It will be set apart as the moral and spiritual cancer that it is. And the Lord Jesus, he will come as the Lord and the heathen will be perished out of his land, it says. Out of his land. That word land is the same word for earth in the Hebrew. The earth will be cleansed. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. A heavens renewed. Earth renewed. And heaven upon earth. Which brings us finally then uh, to, to verse 17 and 18 as we finish off and examine the heart of the Lord. We've seen something of the heart of the Lord as this great vengeful lion, lion of Judah coming to protect his own. So verse, verse 17 and verse 18, the heart of the Lord. Why do we come to the heart? Well, we see he says, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. He hears the humble. He hears their desire. And what is their desire? Well, we know what their desire is from this psalm. Deliverance. Deliver me, Lord. And as much as they know their sin, deliver me from my sin. Deliver me from the world. Deliver me from my enemies. Deliver me from my unbelief. I mean, how often have you read these, verse, these verses? Um, in verse 4 it says, God is not in all his thoughts. Christian, don't you, don't you feel the twinge of the convicting work of the Spirit when you read that and think there are and indeed hours, not just minutes, hours that God is not in all my thoughts. But Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. That the Lord would deliver us from that godlessness in our heart. But he has heard the desire, he has heard our petitions. He hears your petition. Young believer, he hears your petitions when you call upon him. And we trust him to answer them. We don't get this verbal answer immediately. You know, we say amen, we don't hear an amen from heaven. We don't need it because we have the amen of the scriptures. The scriptures give us the amen of God to our prayers. Because God has said that he will hear our prayers, we believe him. We trust him. He will answer in his time, perfect timing, 
though we wait a long time for the answer of the Lord, his timing is perfect and his way of answering is perfect. We can't get more perfect. Here we are coming with our petitions and Lord, this would be the best way and this would be the best time and, and, and even with hindsight we may be able to with humility look back and thought, I praise the Lord that he didn't answer it in that way because that was a terrible way. So the heart of the Lord is a heart that hears the humble but it is also a heart that prepares the humble. Thou will prepare their heart. What does that mean? I think in the context, he prepares us a heart to pray and prepares us a heart to be humble. It is the Lord that gives us everything that we need. Lest we fall into the trip, into that trap that other, other Christians who think that God has looked from all eternity and found something very special in them and therefore he has saved them. No, we must admit as biblical Christians that we have, we have nothing and all that we have has been a gift of God and therefore we should not boast. We should not be boastful, but we should be humble. And God prepares the heart. He prepares the heart that will pray and continue to pray until the Lord is pleased to hear us. We can also say in this sense, it's also that the Lord prepares the heart that we would call upon him for the first time. That he would make us willing in the day of his power that we would call upon the name of the Lord. So he, we see also thirdly, and there's a, a four short little points here, we see thirdly that he intercedes for them. So thou hast heard the desire of the humble, thou wilt prepare their heart, thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. So God ensures that God hears his prayer. What, what does that mean? It's pointing to Christ as the great intercessor for his people. It's the intercessory work of Christ. He who ever liveth to make intercession for his people. It's Christ that ensures that the Father receives our petition. It's the work of the mediator. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. So our prayers can be bad, bad motivation, badly worded, weak, too short-lived. But thank God we have this great intercessor and advocate in the heaven. He makes up for our lack in everything, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes up for our lack in absolutely everything. And here we have him here praying for us. And then finally this, he avenges them fully. And we come back again to that expression, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, the, the weakest in society the most looked down upon in society, the weakest in the church, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. So he hears the humble, he prepares their heart, he intercedes for them, and he avenges them fully. What we read in verse 18 is very similar to verse 16. Verse 16, we could say we're looking at 
the consummation of redemption from God's point of view. And verse 16, we can maybe say this is the consummation of redemption from the people's point of view, God's people's point of view, that he will judge us. Judging in that sense of not judging us unto condemnation, but the word judge in the sense of avenging us, that he will avenge the fatherless. He will avenge the oppressed. And he will do it so far to such an extent that the man of the earth may no more oppress. So it is the, it's the same doctrine as verse 16, just a different point of view. We, we who are, as it were, fatherless in Adam and opposed by the seed of the serpent, that word opposed there is also a word that means terrified. So he will avenge those who are the fatherless and who are terrified by the wickedness upon earth. But that, that, that oppression and that state of fatherlessness will not be for long because of that victory that's been spoken of here. And we again have another psalm that ends in a victory that gives us that victory that we see. Another, a, a relation that we have there with Psalm 9, although it's a very different psalm. To judge the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may no more oppress. Again, that idea that the Lord will deal with them. Like the end of verse, uh, the end of verse uh, of Psalm 9 and verse 20. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men, mere men. The end of verse 6, let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. And that will be the case. The Lord will deal with all of his and our enemies. Why? Because that's part of him being the king. That is the description of his, of his kingship. He being prophet, priest and king. And the sweet truth of his kingship is first he conquers us to himself. He conquers us. Conquers our hearts and our desires. And then he conquers his and our enemies. He is the victorious King Jesus. And may he bless his word to us and feed us thereby to the glory of his name. Amen.